Well, good morning, everyone. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, to uh, the Old Testament, to Proverbs chapter 9. Uh, and if, if you're a guest today, just so you know what we're doing, we're in a series right now called Life Hacks. And in case you don't know what a life hack is, maybe you've never heard of it, a life hack is sort of a, sort of a cultural phenomenon right now. Uh, it's something defined as any technique or strategy adopted to manage one's life uh, and activities in a more skillfully wise and efficient manner. For example, if you have trouble sleeping, apparently if you look at photos of other people sleeping, uh, studies show that it triggers a response in your brain that actually makes you feel more tired, although I'm not, that, I'm sure, I'm not sure that picture is going to help anybody. But I, I didn't want to put a good one up there because I was afraid you all, you all might doze off. So uh, that's kind of a life hack. You know, it's this ad, ad, advice on living um, a more effective life. And so, um, so we're looking at these ideas, and uh, our contention is in the series... That while the terminology is new, uh, the idea and the concept is not. Because over 2,700 years ago, God provided his people with what are essentially spiritual life hacks, uh, or more commonly known as proverbs, wise strategies for skillful living. And keep in mind, uh, proverbs are not laws, they're not promises, uh, they're not formulas ensuring success in any particular area of life. Uh, instead, they are astute observations. They're inspired descriptions on how life works most of the time. Uh, and they reflect the, the down-to-earth, you know, the everyday complexities of human existence, offering practical advice on how we might navigate those complexities with God-honoring wisdom. But here's the deal. Whether or not these Proverbs actually help us depends on what we fear, I don't know if any of you uh, have heard about this, but NBC is preparing to relaunch this year, relaunch its, its, uh, one of its most popular TV shows ever, Fear Factor. It's going to come on a little, little later in the year. Uh, it's a show where contestants compete against each other by facing their fears and performing sort of outrageous stunts. And uh, th- there's something mesmerizing about watching people do terrifying things. Uh, and I'm not the only one who feels that way. When the show first aired, it attracted record numbers of viewers between ages 18 and 49. And it, it in fact, was the uh, third most watched program of kids 14 and under. And the show, uh, you know, it's not for the squeamish. It can, it can get pretty intense. Uh, some episodes, obviously, more than others, dep- depending on what you're afraid of. And everybody's afraid of something. And that, the show is kind of banking on that. A few years ago, we did a poll within the church, and we asked people what they feared most, and we got all kinds of answers. Uh, People shared how they were afraid of snakes, spiders, airplanes, financial ruin, drowning, disease, death, afraid that the Cubs would win the World Series, afraid the Cubs won't win the World Series. Uh, People expressed fear of failure, heights, dirty underwear, Germs, public transportation, bugs, getting lost, clowns, uh, getting, uh, growing old, being kidnapped, and the list uh, went, on and went, went on and on. And, you know, I'm guessing uh, that many of those fears remain intact. You know, hopefully the underwear issue has been resolved. But uh, most of those are probably still intact for us, right? And uh, it, it's, it was fascinating to me how, out of all, out of, out of all the responses... No one said anything about fearing God. Now, I suppose in one sense that's a positive thing, uh, but in another sense it could be a negative depending on your understanding of and use of the word fear. 
Now, throughout the book of Proverbs, we're told that um, fear of the Lord is necessary. It's where wisdom begins. But I don't, and I don't know how you feel about it, but for me, that idea can be a bit confusing because there are instances in Scripture when we're told not to be afraid, right? Uh, in the Old Testament, for example, God's message, consistent message to his people was, you know, do not fear, for I am with you. The psalmist assures us over and over and over again how the Lord is good and his love endures forever. In the New Testament, the Apostle John writes to the early church and he says, he tells them that God is love and his perfect love drives out fear. Christian author and thinker C.S. Lewis once said, God's perfect love we know casts out fear, but so do several other things. Ignorance, alcohol, passion, presumption, and stupidity. Uh, which is sort of um, Lewis's way of saying it's only God and his love that drives fear away forever. And yet we've got people in scripture like Moses, David, Paul, Peter, Joshua, all, all saying we need to fear God. And then here, in, obviously in Proverbs chapter nine, verse 10, we're told the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, so what is, exactly does that mean? And um, how do we reconcile that with other scriptural texts? Because I mean, Jesus didn't, Jesus, uh, didn't Jesus come so that we wouldn't fear God anymore? You know, so how do we understand all this? Well, <clears throat> I think we can begin clearing up the confusion by realizing that in scripture, the term fear can be interpreted two primary ways. Uh, sometimes the term fear can be interpreted um, uh, to mean terror, you know, horror, uh, the, 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 the kind of visceral reaction we have when we face those things we're most afraid of, like spiders, heights, illness, drowning, uh, and, and apparently underwear. But uh, the second meaning of the term has to do with respect, awe, and reverence. It's the kind of... Uh, and you know what I'm feeling, it's the, what I'm saying, it's the kind of fear um, and the feeling you get when you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, you know, or at the feet of the Rocky Mountains or at the base of a giant redwood tree and you look up and, you, and suddenly you experience this moment of just, you know, intense realization that there are things in this world and in this universe that are much bigger, much grander and more glorious than you and me. And when we, we have that experience, when we have that realization, uh, we're, we're sort of overcome with, with awesome amazement. You know, we feel humbled, we feel, we feel small, we feel powerless. Well, it's the second meaning of fear that's represented in Proverbs. Uh, it's the idea of humble awe and inspired reverence of something and of someone much greater than us, and that's God. A more literal translation of Proverbs 9 could be rendered, awe and reverence of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In fact, uh, the Hebrew term that's used here carries the idea uh, of a reverence that flows out of a sense of, of, of weakness, of, of being powerless, but it doesn't just end with a feeling, it, it leads to action. Specifically, humble obedience, submission, uh, and worship. So the writer says, this fear, this reverence of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Notice the, the word Lord here is spelled with capital letters. Uh, and whenever you see that in, in, in your scriptural text, it means that the Hebrew term being translated is the one that God used uh, when he identified himself to Moses. And it's a term that's difficult to translate because uh, it's just four Hebrew consonants known as the tetragrammaton, which means the four letters. 
Uh, and the English equivalent is Y-H-W-H. And our best shot at, at pronunciation is Yahweh. And it's, it's, its basic meaning is I am who I am or I will be what I will be. And the term emphasizes the unique, eternal, unchanging, all-powerful, transcendent, sovereign nature of our creator. The God who is, who is too great, too wonderful, too awesome to be ignored, disrespected, disobeyed, or even fully understood for that matter. And therefore, he is to be honored, he's to be revered. Uh, but is he? Is he? Well, certainly not by some, right? I mean, there are, there are well-known atheists like the late Christopher Hitchens who assert that God is not so great. He's not even real, he's just a figment of our imaginations. Although I gotta tell you, uh, some renowned atheists are altering their opinions on that. Uh, Peter Hitchens, for example, Christopher's brother, was also uh, an avowed atheist, but changed his position, became a believer, and he wrote a book challenging what he calls atheism's rage, uh, rage against God. Um, Dr. Anthony Flew is another example, uh, considered the world's greatest philosophical atheist and author of the classic academic text, The Presumption of Atheism, also abandoned his disbelief. Shortly before his death in 2010, he completed his final book titled, There Is a God, How the World's Most Notorious, a Notorious Atheist Changes His Mind. And with uh, intellectual honesty, Flew writes, the rationality we unmistakably experience, ranging from the laws of nature to our capacity for rational thought, cannot be explained if it doesn't have ultimate ground, which can be nothing less than an infinite mind. I have to go where the evidence leads. And let me tell you something, his radical turn of opinion rocked the, the sort of the academic, atheistic community. But still, you know, there are, there are some in our world who want to deny God or just nudge him to the periphery. And the writers of Proverbs say to do either of those things is foolish. The eternal self-existing, I am that I am, I will be what I will be creator, exists. He is real, he is personal, and he wants to be uh, part of our lives. And it's, and it's a fool who denies him. A fool who ignores what he says about himself, about us, about our relationships, about our world, about right and wrong, good and bad, and what it means to live well. Now, with all that said, I, I, uh, I don't suspect the question of God's existence uh, is as much uh, an issue for us uh, in this room as is the question of what God is like. I mean, some of us might say, look, I, I'm sure God exists, but I'm just not sure what to believe about him. I mean, I think sometimes um, I don't know what to expect from, from him. Sometimes I, you know, I expect too much maybe, so I scale my prayers back as to not be disappointed. Sometimes uh, I'm not sure I'm asking enough. I, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. And if I'm supposed to fear this God and revere this God, I, I guess I just have to know more about him. And that's legitimate. Uh, the writers of Proverbs saw that as legitimate, which is exactly why uh, when you read through the collection, and hopefully you are, when you read through it, you find that the writers don't simply advise us to fear God, they actually relay truths about uh, God to us, which then in turn lead us to a sense of awe and reverence and fear. For example, let's do a quick survey. The writers of Proverbs inform us that God is wise in everything he does. Proverbs 2 says, for the Lord, and there's our term, Yahweh, the I am that I am God, uh, the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. 
Proverbs informs us how God is, is, is all powerful and he will accomplish everything he decides to do. We're told the Lord set the heavens in place. He marked out the horizon on the face of the deep. He established the clouds and fixed securely the fountains of the deep. He gave the sea its boundary and marked out the fountains of the earth, i.e. God created everything we see, know, touch, and experience. The authors then ask rhetorical questions like, who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered up the winds in the hollow of his hands? Who has wrapped up the waters in a cloak? who has established all the ends of the earth. What's his name in the name of his son? Tell me if you know. Translation, who among us measures up to God? No one, none of us. We're powerless before him. There is no one person, there's no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. The I am who I am God is preeminent and indisputable. He is sovereign. He is sovereign over the best laid plans of men and women. Proverbs says, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. God is sovereign over the kingdoms of the earth and its leaders. The writers tell us, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. God is sovereign over daily life. We're told a person's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand their own way? He is sovereign over, over our lotteries and our quick picks. Proverbs says the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. The writers explain how in this world of ours, God is, is too present ever to be absent. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Your ways are in full view of the Lord and he examines all your paths. In other words, God knows everywhere you've been, and everything you've done this week. Nothing has gone unnoticed. He's aware of wickedness, he's aware of righteousness. The Lord detests the way of the wicked, the text tells us, but he loves those who pursue righteousness. And he knows the difference, he knows who's who. In fact, God knows us better than we know ourselves. We're told a person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. You know, he, he knows our hopes, our dreams, our hurts, our thoughts, our motives. None of us have ever seen a motive. We have never seen a motive, which is why we're told not to judge them. But God knows the motives, and he's the judge. And Solomon says, he says, to do what's right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And what he's telling us there is, because God sees the motives, he is not interested in, 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 in phony religiosity and empty ritual, and he knows the difference between what's genuine and what's not. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he's too just ever to be unfair. Uh, the text tells us many seek an audience with a ruler, but it's from the Lord that one gets justice. God is too good not to hate bad things. Proverbs six says, there are six things the Lord detests, seven that are detestable to him. Uh, uh, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. In other words, arrogance, lying, violence, manipulation, abuse, um, slander, and divisiveness. God has no, or at least very little patience with. We're told that God cares too much for the needy, not to reward those who are generous toward them. Whoever is kind to the poor, the author says, 
lends to the Lord. In other words, when we give to, to, to help others, it's like we're giving to God himself. The text says, whoever's kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. God is too holy and righteous not to pronounce judgment. Proverbs says, do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. There is surely a future hope for you and your hope will not be cut off. And finally, the writers point out how God is ultimately too big, too great, too vast for you and me to fully comprehend. And the Lord works out everything for his own ends. In short, God has a plan for you, God has a plan for me, he's got, the, he's got a plan for the world in which we live that we can't fully grasp. Trust me when I tell you, he does not ask my opinion for things on things. N- neither does he need my permission to do whatever he wants to do. What he does, why he does it, how he does it, when God works is entirely up to him. And I can't fully explain it. He's too profound to be predicted, too immense to be hemmed in, uh, too infinite to be truly systematized and categorized. And so for you and for me, as human beings, ultimately it comes down to trust, right? It comes down to putting our faith in this God, this creator. In fact, Solomon advises us in the Proverbs, he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Now, as a quick summary, I realize that was a lot of, you know, uh, Proverbs, a lot of uh, verses, but I wanted to run those out there by you just to show how Proverbs gives us good reason, you know, to, to, to fear God, to be in awe of him, to revere him as our creator. The question is, uh, are we in awe of him? Do we revere him? I mean, really? And if not, why not? I mean, in the midst of our 21st century technologically driven culture where everything is getting downsized, you know, getting smaller and more compact, maybe, I don't know, maybe we've done the same thing to God. What do you think? Is that possible? I mean, is it possible, even for us in the church, uh, is it possible that we've reduced God to sort of this, this, this well-defined, controllable deity? As a result, we believe more in our own reduced idea of him than in God himself? I mean, have we compacted the Lord, the I am, uh, who I am, I will be who I will be God into a nice, neat, convenient image of our own making? Sort of a manageable deity who is accountable to us, who serves us, whose purpose is to meet our needs and our demands and our whimsy, and if not, he's damnable? I mean, if that's the case, then it certainly explains our fearlessness, our lack of reverence, true reverence. Because here's the deal, man, if, you know, if God gets so small that we think we can sufficiently define him, describe him, demand him, and delineate him, then, then we will lose any sense of awe and wonder of him, we will. In fact, let me tell you, when you come in here, you should never fear a God I say that I can fully explain to you. Because then, it's a God I have created, not the God who created me. Because the God who created me and the God who created you, the God who created the world in which we exist is far more immense and glorious than the Grand Canyon, more majestic than the Rocky Mountains, more regal than a redwood. He's more magnificent than my little brain could ever imagine. And at the moment we truly recognize that, I mean truly recognize it in our minds and in our hearts, 
that God is too set apart, too holy, too powerful, too wonderful, too great to completely comprehend, big enough to fill universes beyond universes with a divine word, then will we stand in humble reverence before him. But not until. Not until. I mean, if you slow down long enough to just, just kind of meditate on the whole mystery of God, man, that is, it's staggering. It's fascinating to me how, you know, in America today, we live in a culture that's grown increasingly skeptical and cynical of organized religion, and yet remains exceptionally spiritual. A majority of Americans, well over 90%, believe in God. And so as a culture, we, you know, we have this, we have this innate sense that something big exists beyond ourselves, you know, beyond what we can see, hear, taste, touch, and smell. There's something more out there. And so this, there's this unrelenting search for the transcendent, for something independent of the material universe. And people aren't dumb. I mean, people, people realize that if God does in fact exist, how could we possibly understand everything about him? How could we do that? How can the finite comprehend the infinite? We can't. We can't. And with that being true, sometimes I think that we as Christians lose people in conversation when we try to present God in a neatly packaged systematic theology, inferring that we've got them all figured out. I'm not sure that's always helpful. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying theology is bad. I like, I like theology. I'm not saying it's bad. Neither am I saying God hasn't revealed enough about himself through nature and scripture and Jesus that we can't know him. I'm just saying, I'm just saying we have to admit that when it comes to God, the I am who I am, creator, a tension exists between revealed truth and incomprehensive mystery. And there are things about the creator, who he is, what he does, why he does it, how he does it, that extend beyond our ability to grasp. And I realize that that makes some of us, that makes some of us anxious. But, um, you know, we need to be okay with our limitations. God is certainly okay with them. I mean, from his sovereign act of creation to the notion of how in Jesus deity comes to us that we might gain some semblance of his power, his love, his grace. And the very thought that God would enter history and sacrifice himself for humanity so that our rebellion against him could be forgiven. And that is the meta narrative of scripture. That is the good news. That is mind boggling. Is it not? No human brain cell could conceive of such a thing. And so when we come in here together to worship collectively, to worship this God, this creator, this savior, I'm thinking we should be just blown away by, by the mystery of it all, overwhelmed by, by what we know of him and in awe of what we don't. We fear him in the truest sense. I was thinking more about this the other day when I was walking my dog. And uh, there are no voices from heaven. There are no lightning bolts. The dog didn't say anything to me. Uh, but, you know, but I, I just, I, I was praying about it. I just got this sense that God wanted to know, Ray, do you really fear me? Do you fear me? You're gonna talk to the church about it, but do you fear me? Yeah, of course, my answer is yes. 
but I sensed the response was, well, are you sure about that? Because sometimes it sure doesn't seem so. Doesn't seem that way. Take Sunday morning, for example. There are weeks that there's so much going on in my, my head that I come in here and I leave God out of the equation. That's, that's kind of embarrassing to admit to you. Uh, it's certainly not intentional, but it happens. You know, I come in to worship with you guys, but I end up forgetting who I'm here for. And don't be offended, but it's not primarily you. I don't know, maybe, maybe it's because I'm tired, maybe because I'm anxious about what I've written, what I'm gonna say, I don't wanna babble on like a knucklehead. I don't know, maybe I'm contemplating what's coming on, you know, what's gonna happen later in the evening or what I'm gonna do for lunch or the staff ma- meeting later this week. I got all this stuff rattling around in my brain, all the moving pieces of Sunday morning and sometimes I come in here and I miss the wonder and the awe and the mystery of acknowledging and affirming the presence of the Almighty in whom I live, move, and have my very being. You know what I'm saying? What about you? Be, be honest about it, because God already knows the truth. Just be honest with yourself about it. Do we, do you, worship God in fear and reverence, true reverence? Do you worship in, rever- in reverence when you make it out two times a month maybe, or when you stroll in late with our cell phones on and the day's activities rattling around in our brains and we slip out early to go watch the Cubs. Is that, is that reverence? I mean, is that reverence? Let me tell you something. Some people, some people think that reverence is about the way we dress. And if we don't come in here with suits and ties, we're irreverent. It, reverence isn't about that. Some people think it's about the way we sing, the style of songs. It's not. Some think reverence is about religious lingo. It's not. Or that it's about silence. It's not. Some think reverence is, is about how much time we spend in this room. The longer, the more reverent. That's not true. Reverence is all about what you and I believe deep down inside about God and then how we respond to him. That's what it's about. It's, it's, it's a both a mind and a heart issue. And let me just say something because I was thinking about this earlier today, just this morning. If, 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 this, if God is just a theory to you, then it's just gonna be a brain deal. If God is just a theory, then there's no emotional element to it. But if God is personal, if God is real, then there's gonna be something that moves from the head to the heart because, because reverence is about the brain and the heart. It's about the rational and the experiential. It's about the cognitive and the emotional. Which means when you come in here to worship together, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you come in fear and reverence of God. I don't know, but he does. He knows. And by the way, there's something else reverence is not, just for the record. It's not about an hour a week. It's not an hour a week deal. Uh, think about, think, think again of, of, of the proverb that we have here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the end of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. And we talked about this earlier in the series, that how wisdom is not about acquiring more and more and more information. 
It's not about having, a, having high IQs or, or getting advanced education. Biblical wisdom has to do with the ability to make right decisions. It, it, it's practical. It's about discerning in life what is, what is the right, good, healthy, God-honoring course of action to take in any given situation. Interestingly enough, the Hebrew term used here for wisdom carries the idea of a skillful habit, an ongoing, day-to-day, hour-by-hour, moment-to-moment way of doing life according to what God has to say. And so here's the connection. If we genuinely fear and revere God, then we're gonna listen to him. And we're gonna submit to him and we're gonna obey his words, and we're gonna, we're gonna incorporate his divine guidance into our lives and into our relationships and into our everyday decisions. Here at Parkview, we call it everyday worship. It doesn't just end here. It's an everyday deal. In other words, when God says, a man who commits adultery has no sense, whoever does so destroys himself, we will, we will believe it and, and remain faithful to our spouses. And when scripture says, honor the Lord with your wealth, We'll do just that. We'll give, we'll give generously, ridiculously for his cause, expecting nothing in return. When God warns that when pride comes, then comes disgrace, we'll be sure to keep a check on our attitudes regarding ourselves and others, and we'll stop looking down our noses at others and feeling superior over everybody. When we hear how God detests a false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community, we'll make it a habit of telling the truth and doing what fosters healthy community among friends and family and within the church. And if we really wanna know what divine wisdom looks like on earth, we'll look to Jesus. We'll look to Jesus because as the Apostle Paul explained, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God, personified. Divine wisdom uh, come in the flesh. Uh, In his classic text, The Knowledge of the Holy, Christian author and theologian A.W. Tozer wrote, what comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. And he's right. That's true, it's true for all of us. Why? Because, Because what we really believe about God determines the way we approach him you know, recklessly or respectfully, arrogantly or humbly, rudely or reverently. Whether we believe he's great or whether we believe he's small, that belief will trend our lives in a direction of either uh, greed or generosity, selfishness or servanthood, rebellion or obedience, foolishness or wisdom. Because ultimately, as the writer of Proverbs tells us, fear is a key factor when it comes to wise, skillful living. Awe and reverence of our holy, almighty creator is where good, right, healthy, wise decisions are made. Let's pray. Our Father, we just wanna take a moment to, at least I wanna take a moment to acknowledge that you are the creator of all things. You're not, you're not a chum, you're not a buddy, you're not a servant to us in the sense that you give us everything we want when we want it, how we want it. You're not a genie in a bottle. 
You are the creator of the universe who's holy and right and just and good and loving and all-powerful. Forgive us when we forget that. When we tend to make you in our own image so that we can kind of control you. This morning we, we stand in awe of you for you are uncontrollable. We want you to know we love you this morning as best we can. We want to live for you and we want to live right before you. Because we recognize and we admit you know what's best for us. You know what's right and good and healthy. Help us submit ourselves to your will and to your word. And help us to worship you in true reverence for who you are. We stand before you this morning as weak, broken, powerless, sinful people. But we proclaim your love and your goodness and your greatness. We worship you this morning in true reverence. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? So, so the question, I guess, is do you really believe in this God, this creator, this savior? Um, and if so, how does that impact you, you know, in your daily life? Because here, here's how I see it. I mean, if God is just a theory, then it's just this, this head thing, and there's, there's really no heart, there's no application. But if he's more than a theory, if he's real in your life, and you understand how, how God came to rescue you in Jesus. And how his grace, when embraced, forgives all of our sins and all the brokenness, everything in our lives and offers us life. Something moves from our head to our hearts. And then we worship. I and mean, we worship in awe and reverence and love because of what God has done for us. Grace changes us from the inside out, as we like to say. And we carry this reverence through our, through our lives every day. Is that your experience? And if not, maybe you need to rethink what you believe about God and, uh, and what you believe about Jesus. But I wanna thank you for being here this morning and I, I hope you come back next week. We're gonna continue in the series, talk a little bit more about wisdom next week and um, hopefully you're finding it helpful. Uh, if you're following the service, you wanna talk to somebody, some of our prayer folks will be down front. They're here for you, so they'll be glad to chat with you, okay? In the meantime, have a great weekend. Be safe and uh, I'll pray for us and we'll be dismissed. And now, Father, as the church leaves the building, we realize we don't leave you behind. You go with us, you go before us. You see every, every moment of our lives, you know our hearts. I pray that we would live in such a way that we would point people to you, our creator, our savior. And so may your hand of grace and peace and power rest on your church today. I ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Thanks for being here, we'll see you next week.